Well, as you remain standing, turn in your Bibles uh, to the last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 3, is where we will be this evening. We want to come to the sixth letter to the churches there in Asia Minor as we look at the letter to the church in Philadelphia, which is verses 7 through 13, which is almost the longest letter of all the seven that Christ writes. So let me read those verses for us and pray briefly for our study and we'll begin. So here once again, as Christ speaks to us, His church today, through His perfect word. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God. And the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and has my own name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we ask your simple blessing on this wonderful text. That we would hear these words. And find your divine benediction that you've attached to them. That we would hear your word, that we would keep it. And find your great blessing as we look to Christ. And we pray these things in his precious name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most influential books that I've ever read on, on prayer. Some of you I know have read it before. was written almost 30 years ago by a theologian named Don Carson. It's called A Call to Spiritual Reformation. Uh, It's been retitled in a second edition called Praying with Paul. And about 30 years ago, right in the introduction of that book, here's what Don Carson asked. What is the most urgent need of the church in the Western world today? And then over the next few pages, he began to scan the common answers on tap at the time for what the church needed at that time. He pointed to something like moral purity or financial integrity or evangelistic urgency. And he said, however necessary and appropriate those things are, they're still not the fundamental need of the Western church as he saw it so many decades ago. Now, what do you think you would say in answer to that question? Put it now, 2020, what's the most basic need, the greatest need of the Western church in our time? Carson eventually answered his own question by saying this, the one thing we most urgently need in Western Christendom is a deeper knowledge of God. We need to know God better. And it's an answer that you might recognize Revelation completely agrees with. 
Because as we've been looking at these letters to the churches in recent weeks, what have we seen but Jesus come to local congregations and say, what you need most is to know who I am revealed in my word. And he comes once again to another church. This evening it's the church there in Philadelphia. And he says what they need to know is the truth about who he is. They need a deeper knowledge. They need a deeper experience. They need a deeper awareness of the Savior. Now, kids, you want to pay attention to this letter because unlike almost every other letter in this book, the church at Philadelphia gets no condemnation from Jesus Christ. You might have noticed that it's only commendation. They get no harsh words. The Savior has only kind things to say about this church. And the reason you want to pay attention to it is because we ought to always care about what Jesus says he delights in when it comes to his local congregation. Right? You can think of an athlete, uh, a proper, a good, a faithful, and wise athlete. Always wants to know how his coach or her coach wants him or her to play. And in a similar way, we as a church, we want to know how Jesus wants us to live. How Jesus desires for His church to live. And so you're going to see that in a variety of different ways in this letter. I just want to walk through the two halves under two simple headings. First, I want you to see the Savior's authority. That's verses 7 through 9. And then verses 10 through the end, trust the Savior's security. See the Savior's authority. Notice begins again in verse 7. He's writing this time. He's addressing the church there in Philadelphia. So students, I imagine that you would know something about Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. But I doubt you know much about first century Philadelphia, Asia. Uh, What you need to know about the time, among many other things that you could mention, is the city had this name, a a common nickname of sorts, that was called the City of the Open Door. Because if you think about 19th century in America, you think of the West, it was like the Wild West, the further that you went, of course, West. Well, at that time in ancient Roman Empire, the further you went East, it was like the Wild East. And to get there, you had to go through ordinarily Philadelphia. And so Philadelphia was this place that would espouse, it would send out uh, the popular Hellenistic and Greek morals and attitudes and philosophy of the time as a relatively prosperous city because it had this grape growing industry that flourished in the nearby vicinity. Importantly, also, the city of Philadelphia changed its name several times throughout the centuries, often trying to curry favor with Roman emperors and rulers. But for the point of this letter, you need to know Philadelphia was commonly understood to be the city of the open door. What they need to know first, according to verse 7, are three truths about who Jesus is. Notice, first of all, his deity. You see how verse 7 continues. He says, the words of the Holy One, a common title attributed to God the Father throughout the Old Testament, is the Holy One of Israel. And if you flip over to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, there you'll see the martyrs address God the Father, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true. And here Jesus is taking these divine titles and what? Attaching them to himself. Because he's saying, I am God. This is truth about his deity. Secondly, it mentions his reliability. It's not just the words of the Holy One, but also the true one. Uh, Several years ago, Emily, my wife, she was part of this community Bible study. And as she was in 
her Bible study group, the kids were like in their Bible study classes, and the teachers did a great job instructing the kids in, in Bible and truth, and they taught the kids this little ditty of sorts whenever they opened the Bible, that the kids were supposed to sing in different voices along the way, absolutely true, absolutely true. Everything the Bible says is absolutely true. And Jesus says, that was, that's what you must understand about me. I am absolutely true in all my works, in all my words. It's his deity, it's his reliability, but also his authority. You see how verse 7 ends. He says, I am the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. You can write this down in the side of your Bible. It's almost a direct quotation there at the end of verse 7 of a text in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, which is speaking of this man named Eliakim. He gets the key to the house of David. He would have been something like in that ancient context, like the major domo of the Davidic kingdom. He had the key and it was his authority to let you into a room or it was his authority to shut you out of the room. He had the key of the palace of David, and he thus controlled entrance into and out of the palace. And Jesus is saying here, I am the true son of David. I have the key of David. And only I can open the door and shut the door. Only I have the authority to grant entrance into my eternal celestial palace and kingdom, which is going to be quite important for what comes in verse 8. He has the key, he has authority, reliability, and he is, of course, the divine Holy One of Israel. Uh, just yesterday, it was a nice day at the Stone Home, pleasant weather outside. Someone was doing some work in our house, and we were trying to keep the kids away from him as he was working kind of near the front porch. And those of you that have young children surely remember those days and may have had one of those days recently, where it's beautiful fall weather, and you kick him outside and say, go play for an hour. Six minutes go by, and then they start to come inside. And then about every 30 seconds, it seems someone comes in. What are you doing? I don't know. I just want to be inside. Get back outside. You're not supposed to be inside. And so we eventually lock the door. You're not allowed inside. Stay outside. We'll tell you when you come back inside. And they proceeded to knock on the door, squint in through the glass. Why can't we come in? Because you are locked out. And the good news of Jesus Christ holding the key of David in verse 8 is no one can lock out the Philadelphian Christians. And here's why that's important. Notice how verse 8 continues. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Some people think this open door refers to missionary evangelistic opportunity. Because Paul actually oftentimes in his letters prays for an open door to share the gospel. And that could be true, but I think certainly in context here, it's Jesus' authority to open a door to his heavenly assembly, to the palace of glory above. And what he's telling these Philadelphian Christians, that again is going to mean more once we get to verse 9, is I open that door and no one can lock you out. Such is my authority. And he understands not only their great need, but also their little power. Look at verse 8, as it continues, I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So verse 8 says, I know your works, which can be a comforting thing to faithful churches. 
which can be a terrifying thing to faithless churches, not just I know your works, but I also know your weakness. He's probably saying there in context that the Philadelphian church was small enough, their size wasn't large, that they just had little power. And it's important to notice here, it's not big budgets, large buildings, or many bodies that impresses Jesus Christ. What is it? Simple humility, faith, repentance that keeps His word and doesn't deny His name. But he wants them to know something about the threat that faces them. So think for a second then in our current context. What would you say the most immediate threat is facing Redeemer Presbyterian Church? What might you say is the most immediate threat facing the church in North Texas? Well, we could speculate on answers. We don't know. But we certainly know what the immediate threat was facing the church there at Philadelphia. Notice verse 9. He says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Pause there. What he's saying is, I think in context, the best way to understand this is these, these early Christians, like so often happened in the first century when they would be converted to Jesus Christ, they began often to gather even at synagogues with other Jews worshiping alongside them even early on in the Christian experience. They would worship on Saturday there and worship on the Lord's Day at home somewhere else. But the the Jews there at the synagogue in Philadelphia evidently have excommunicated all the Christians. What have they done? Following the door metaphor, they've locked them out. And they said, you're not a, a Jew. Because, of course, you trust in this Messiah, you say, is Jesus Christ. And Jesus says they're nothing more than pseudo-Jews. They're just liars. They don't understand the truth. Because you might know how the New Testament often speaks about true Jews. They're ones who trust in Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3 says, We Christians are the true circumcision. Paul says in Romans 2, verse 29, he says, One is a Jew inwardly by the Spirit. And because they haven't repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus Christ, they're just false Jews, Jesus says. Don't pay attention to their persecution towards you. In fact, recognize what's coming their way. You see how verse 9 ends. Christ's authority further underscore that as he says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. It's hard to know exactly what Jesus means there. Uh, Some people would take this to be some sort of future conversion. Maybe Jews at the end of the day, Jews there in the age of the Philadelphian Christians, they're going to be converted to Christ and join with the Philadelphian Christians as they worship Jesus. I think much more likely is the opposite. Because the Old Testament expectation, Psalm 86 verse 9 for example, was that the Gentiles would come and worship at the Jews' feet. And Jesus, as he often does, now reverses the expected pattern in the fulfillment of that prophecy. Because it's here, these Philadelphian Christians, that they are the true Israel of God. Because the church is the true Israel of God. And now these unbelieving Jews, he says, one day will come and worship at your feet. And I don't think that's actually a connotation of faithful worship. Because all the Old Testament prophecies, it's this eschatological reversal of judgment. Like before, or certainly I should say, after it's too late, they will come and worship at your feet. Whatever it is that Jesus is saying here, see my authority. Let no longer these opponents, these enemies trouble you, for I know your works and I know your weakness. And so he wants them to see now in verse 10 through 13 to trust his 
security. It was probably almost 20 years ago that I remember being on a plane ride to Europe. I was over the Atlantic Ocean. Supposed to be asleep because one of those, you know, red-eye flights. And I couldn't get to sleep because I was reading this book that had me up over those waters. And it was a book that had very much taken the evangelical world of America at the time by storm. And some of you have read it. I'm sure many of you know about it. It was none other than the title called Left Behind. You know, this book that just had me all kind of roused and troubled about this future tribulation out of which God was going to rapture His church. And so even though I was supposed to be sleeping on the way to the soccer tournament, I couldn't get away from this kind of eschatological reality of left behind. And you might know that verse 10 is one of the favorite proof texts for such a tribulation. For look at what Jesus says. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on earth. You want to notice, students, even the back phrase there in verse 10, those who dwell on earth. It's something of a, a specific and technical term in Revelation to refer most precisely to idol worshipers. So he's telling the Philadelphian Christians that he's going to keep them from this trial, from this tribulation that's going to fall on idol worshipers. And it's certainly not right for us to think, is it, about some sort of future tribulation Thousands and thousands of years of the future, way beyond the Philadelphian Christians' experience from which Jesus was going to keep them actually after they were long gone from this very earth. It seems much better, I think, in balance of the book to recognize the ensuing chapters as they communicate something of this great trial, something of this great trouble that is on the way that Jesus is not as much going to keep them from the trial, but keep them through the trial. Oh, whatever it is, it's a promise of protection. I think it's surely some sort of localized trial, localized trouble that Christ was going to bring on idol worshipers in and around Philadelphia. And he says, I'm not going to take you out of that trial, but I'm going to protect you through that trial. Because isn't that what Jesus Christ himself prayed in John 17? You might know this, John 17, verse 15. He said, Lord, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And the beauty of God's word, Jesus now becomes the answer to his very prayer. Where he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial because you have kept my word about patient endurance. But that comfort is not meant to make them complacent. Look at verse 11. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I'm on the way. Church of Philadelphia, coming soon, hold on to that crown on your head. Hey kids, I wonder if you've been outside recently or maybe in months past when it was like quite windy outside and you had a hat on. If you were kind of playing around, running around, I suppose maybe at some point you just kind of had to hold the hat in place. And spiritually speaking, Jesus is telling the Philadelphian Christians they need to do the same thing. That windy trials, windy tribulations are on the way and they need to hold fast their crown. Because, of course, the true fullness of Scripture means no one can truly take their crown. But nevertheless, Jesus says you're to hold on to it as he protects them, as he encourages their perseverance. And to make sure they get there, he gives them this threefold promise. Notice in verse 12, he says to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. So this church of little power, Jesus now says will an immovable pillar in the temple. And you need to know something about how important 
and significant pillars are and temples to know why this would have been such a comfort for the church at Philadelphia. I mean, if you're anything like me, and you think about the heavenly temple above, I certainly want to cultivate a spirit that says, Lord, I'll be a cock on the wall. You know, I'll just be a, a tile in the temple. I'll be the meaningless mortar between the bricks. He says, no, I'll make you a pillar in my temple. Immovable stability belongs to you in my place. And that stability now moves to security as the second promise comes. You see as verse 12 continues. I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. No one can take you out of this temple. There's no threat. Kids understand this. And the glorious city that is above. That someone can come in and steal you away from the heavenly city. It's a promise not just of security. It's not only a promise of stability. It's also a promise of identity. Look at the name that he gives him. At the end of verse 12. And I will write on him the name of my God. The name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven. And my own New name. We don't know exactly, of course, what that would look like. But you can think about the joy that often accompanies young parents. You know, when a baby is on the way and you realize that she's expecting and the due date is somewhat near in the future. And you say, oh, it's a boy or a girl. And they say, well, it's a boy. And what do you often say next? Or do you have a name picked out? And they begin to talk about the potential names or the certain name of this child because the name communicates, doesn't it? Something quite significant and valuable to that family. And here comes Jesus saying, I'm going to give you this name. It's the name of my God. It's the name of my city. And it's the name of myself. That's what I'm going to put on you, Philadelphia. And why it seems to be maybe be a unique encouragement to Philadelphia is because it was a city that actually experienced a number of earthquakes along the way. So much so that people by this time in the first century, they weren't really building houses inside the city. They were trying to build in the surrounding areas that were understood to be more stable and more secure. And here comes Jesus along at the very end of his encouragement to this small little church. You can trust my security. Such is the promise that belongs to my people. You, the church and the city of the open door, recognize that I have set an open door before you. And if you're in here this evening and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I hope that you know that Jesus Christ himself says he is the open door, that whoever would find eternal life must enter through him. And that open door, even in the text before us this evening, is set before you. Will you not just enter in to the fullness of this glory and grace of Jesus Christ? So Philadelphia is not a perfect church. We know that, even though it gets no words of condemnation, but we do know it's a church that pleased Jesus Christ. It's a church in which he delighted. We might say it differently. It was a healthy church. And so what I want to do as we begin to close is just emphasize two simple marks about this healthy church there in Philadelphia, the first of which a healthy church thrives in patience and perseverance. A healthy church thrives in patience and perseverance. Look again at verse 10. What does he commend so centrally to this church? Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Don't you think that's a wonderful, simple summary of the Christian life? Patient endurance. 
So much of the church's experience in our context in 2020 is little more than the midst of a pandemic and political, divisive climate like our own. It's one of what? Patient endurance. Do you want to find reasons why a church tends to go astray into sickness? Impatience. Indifference. I wonder if your own life you might be facing a point in which a trial and temptation has come to you and Satan is tempting you to impatience. Satan is tempting you to give in and give up easily. Satan wants you to roll over spiritually. These tiny little Philadelphian Christians, little in power, yet mighty in patience, immense in perseverance. And Jesus says he delights in them, which is the second thing. Not only a healthy church thrives in patience and perseverance, a healthy church knows Christ's pleasure. A healthy church knows Christ's pleasure. Now, I've told a number of you this, I think, before, but with every one of our children that have been born, as soon as they could say, Daddy, from that day on, I began to teach them the Stone Family Catechism, which has one question. And that one question has one simple answer. Who loves you? And they must say, Daddy. And while they are literal, I say it randomly all throughout their days to ingrain it into them that Daddy loves them. Then the older they get, I tend to say it most in times of hardship and trouble and even discipline. When things are difficult, who loves you? Daddy. To the Philadelphian Christians, do you see at the end there of verse 9, in the midst of your persecution, difficulty, and trial, who loves you? Jesus says, these false, lying Jews will learn that I have loved you. If you're in Christ today, do you know that powerful news that Jesus loves his church? I wonder when the last time was you felt the Spirit apply God's word to you and find the Savior saying, I love you. In the midst of your hardship, in the midst of your hurt, in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your trouble, don't worry, I love you. And I will protect you from all the evil that is coming and I promise you a future inheritance that far exceeds your greatest possible imagination. Such is the Savior's authority to Philadelphia. Such is the Savior's security to Philadelphia. Such is the word even to us this evening. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would bless us in Jesus Christ, that even we as a church body here at Redeemer would be found faithful like those saints of old in Philadelphia. Give us patience. Increase our perseverance. Father, we do pray in the midst of our weakness, perhaps even weariness, that the Spirit would apply to us that great gospel balm that is the good news that Jesus loves his people. Father, we want to thrive as a healthy church, so make us into that for the glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we want to respond to God's word. Rejoice in that great love that he has shown us, God the Father in Jesus Christ, as we sing hymn 455, And Can It Be That I Should Gain.